Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians, not, oh, on the wrong page. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 19. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Well, I want to apologize, uh, first of all, for not having sermon slides up here. Uh, the title slide there is just so that there's something uh, for you to look at other than me, uh, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. But some weeks are crazier than others, and this was one of those weeks. And so the, the thing that didn't get done was the sermon slides. So I apologize for that failing. Actually, it might be related to this. I had a dream last night that, um, that I was getting a bad grade in Sunday school. Um, the church ladies were giving me a D. Um, and apparently it was because I didn't know this the whole time, but they were grading the notes that I was taking. Like, that's my entire grade is the class notes. Like, who grades class notes? Class notes are just 
what I doodle while I'm listening to a lecture to, to not be bored, but um, I don't know why I told you any of that. That has nothing to do with anything, but uh, I just needed to get that off my chest. You know how you have a dream and you're still kind of, you're just, you're still angry and, and frightened about it, like thinking, you know, I, have a, I have a Master of Divinity degree. How am I getting a D in Sunday school? But I, I, just, I just can't get over it, so um, pray for me. Um, and then... <laughs> We'll begin here. Um, by way of introduction to the sermon itself, uh, picture in your mind a struggling church. A struggling church. What comes to mind when you think of a struggling church? What is that church struggling with? Probably think of things like uh, attendance. Are they struggling with decline? Uh, you might think, think about, uh, are they struggling with outreach? You know, how many baptisms have they had lately? Uh, usually we think of a struggling church as one that's struggling with finances. Is, is the budget getting tight? Do they have enough resources? Do they have enough volunteers to go around and keep things going? Or is recruiting a struggle? What about leadership? Do they have strong, united sense of vision and direction? Or are they adrift? What's the preaching like? Is it solid and deep and relevant, or is it boring and out of touch? In other words, am I preaching? Sorry, self-deprecating humor I couldn't resist. But th these are the kinds of things that we usually think of when we think of a struggling church, right? Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at a different kind of struggling church. Because out of all of the churches that Paul planted, the one he seems to have struggled with the most is the church in Corinth. And that church seems to be the opposite of what we usually think of as a struggling church. Um, they're not lacking volunteers. In fact, the church is chock full of people who are gifted and eager to get plugged in. The problem is they don't want to use their gifts to help others. They just want to use their gifts to build themselves up, to impress others with how talented they are and gifted they are. It doesn't seem to be a small church. They're big enough that they're on the verge of splitting into several different groups. Uh, they've got plenty of bold, dynamic leaders and teachers, enough for the church to argue and quarrel about which one is the best, enough for the church to be proud of their teacher's skill rather than concerned about their teacher's message. As Paul puts it at one point, the church is just flat-out arrogant, and arrogance ties into this theme of generosity that we've been focusing on for a while. Arrogance, I think, is the enemy of true generosity, because generosity, at the end of the day, is taking what is rightfully mine and out of love, giving that to someone else for the good of another. Arrogance does the opposite. Arrogance demands what is rightfully mine, even things that are possibly not rightfully mine. So one of Paul's objective with this church in Corinth is to show them that the way of Christ is about generously giving up my rights, my freedoms for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom. And just to put chapter 9 in context here, uh, in chapter 6, uh, this idea of giving up rights for others uh, means that the church in Corinth, they need to stop suing each other. Can you imagine? They're, they're suing each other. It's bad enough that they're defrauding each other and wronging each other, but then they take it a step further and sue each other, and Paul tells them it, it's better just to be wronged and to forgive. That requires giving up that right to whatever it is you were going to sue for. 
Chapter 7, some difficult verses and difficult chapter for us to take sometimes, but he encourages them uh, within the context of that chapter to consider giving up the right to marry. He says you're free to marry and marriage is good and godly, but singleness provides opportunities for the gospel to go forth that marriage does not. And so Paul is um, single and rejoices in those opportunities that he has, giving up that right, which is mentioned again in chapter 9. Chapter 8, Paul talks about food sacrificed to idols. There's a conflict going on in Corinth over meat that you might not always know if it was sacrificed in a temple uh, to a pagan god, and those who are strong of conscience know that they're free to eat. That idol is nothing. It's, it's just meat. Uh, you're free to eat meat that was sacrificed in the temple, but there are some Christians who just can't do that in good conscience. And if they see you exercising your right to eat, you're encouraging them to sin against their own conscience. So it's better to give up your right to eat. It's not sinful to eat that meat, but it's sinful to have this attitude that I'm going to eat whatever I want and who cares how it affects anybody else, right? So that's the freedoms and the rights that he's talking about. And that's what's behind his opening question in here in chapter 9 as he leads by example. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who examine me. So we were just talking about your freedom, says Paul. Let's talk about my freedom. Let's talk about my rights. Paul says, I'm an apostle. That means I'm a witness and representative of the risen Christ. Jesus sent Paul and the other apostles to build the church from the ground up. And the Corinthian church is proof of Paul's apostleship because Paul planted that church. Paul built that church. And as an apostle, Paul says, I have rights too. Specifically, Paul says he has the right to get paid for his works. By all rights, the job of apostle should come with a paycheck. But Paul gives up that right. That's what he's doing in this chapter, showing them how he's leading by example. Now, this brings up the sensitive and dangerous topic of paying gospel ministers. Uh, This kind of teaching in Scripture is applied not just to apostles, but to to pastors, to missionaries. Same teaching, some of the same verses and quotes from Christ. Uh, Paul quotes here, he quotes elsewhere. It might be wiser and safer for me to just gloss over this quickly. Uh, It's not only sensitive, but it's complicated. There are a lot of what-if situations and different situations churches can be in, and it's, it's impossible to address every one of those. There's a danger of miscommunication. There's the awkward fact that I'm on the receiving end of this topic, right? Uh, I get a paycheck from a church, and it seems self-serving uh, to talk about it. On the other hand, uh, we're always saying that we want our preachers to preach what Scripture says, even if it's uncomfortable, uh, even if it's hard to say and, and hard to hear. And it shouldn't be uncomfortable for us in this church because this is something that, frankly, this church does well and, as far as I know, has always done well. Uh, There's no rebuke here. There's no angling for more pay. Uh, They're simply wanting to look at at what Scripture teaches and understand it uh, because Scripture is uh, profitable for training us in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. And 
Finally, uh, another reason to look at this is while this church does well, many churches do not do well. Uh, we, we've all heard the stories, we all joke about the attitude, you know, we keep our pastor poor to keep him humble. Uh, people really do think that way. I'm not sure it really works. Uh, you probably find plenty of underpaid pastors who are still uh, prideful. Uh, if that were a good solution to pride, that, that would be great. But um, a friend of mine uh, was once interviewing for a church, and uh, they were bragging about some of the, the programs and just really impressive things that they were able to do. As, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that they were doing is that they simply by their regular giving, uh, their regular weekly giving, they were able to uh, finance the construction of a, of a very impressive large facility. But then when it got time to talk about uh, compensation and the pay package, they said, well, we really can't pay you enough to live on uh, and, and still do all this other stuff that we'd like to do. So... There's good news, though, because we'll pay you low enough that you'll qualify for all these government assistance programs. Uh, can you imagine that? A debt-free building and a pastor on welfare. We're going to let the government uh, take on that responsibility of caring for our pastor and his family. Um, just boggles the mind. The separation of church and state, uh, how does that factor in? But, but So there's that tendency. But on the other hand, some churches go to the opposite extreme, right? If you're on Instagram, you can look up the account Preachers and Sneakers. It's pretty entertaining. Uh, someone has taken pictures of various megachurch pastors along with evidence of what shoes they're wearing and how much those shoes cost. I did manage to get uh, that slide on there. You can see uh, a celebrity pastor there and some $965 shoes. None of my shoes cost that much. Um, <clears throat> and of course, if you're kind of in that health and wealth movement where folks believe that if you have enough faith, you can be filthy rich, then, then of course it makes sense for your pastor to lead the way. If money is a sign of having enough faith, then yeah, your, your pastor should be rich. But churches fall into living that way, even if they aren't teaching that way necessarily. Um, and as I put the pieces together from First and Second Corinthians, I think that's a little bit the attitude that's going on there. See, even today, we kind of have this natural assumption that if someone's really good at something, they ought to be making lots of money doing it, right? And, and in, in Corinth, before Paul even came, they already had this sort of culture of public speaking as kind of a spectator sport. Uh, they enjoyed uh, rhetoric, they would call it, so that they had a natural desire to hear speaking, and, and so they had a natural desire to hear preaching. But they also ended up judging gospel preaching by the same criteria by which they judged any other kind of public speaking. If someone's really good at speaking, uh, that means that they're right, for one thing. And if someone's really good at speaking, it should make them wealthy and, and famous. They should be well-to-do. So the Corinthian church is impressed with what Paul in 2 Corinthians calls these super apostles who are really good at speaking, uh, but not really good at speaking the truth. But they sound good. They, they meet the cultural expectations of the Corinthians, a flashy, charismatic speaker who can draw a crowd and look good doing it. It's the image of earthly success. And this is antithetical. This is the opposite of the message that we ought to be preaching. New Testament scholar Mark Seifried uh, put it, puts it this way. He said, the gospel, 
He's commenting on 2 Corinthians, by the way, but it applies to the whole Corinthian situation. He says, the gospel may be lost not merely by bad doctrine, but by bad living, and not merely by the bad living of immorality, but by the decision to measure the work of the gospel and the presence of Christ by the standards of power, success, and popularity. According to Paul, this practical judgment, which above all else values charisma, wealth, and numbers, is heresy. It's a strong quote, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Dr. Seifert was my Sunday school teacher once, and he never gave me a D in Sunday school, so um, sorry, I, can't, I just can't get over it. Um, but the idea there is that, in other words, the problem in Corinth is the idea that if we're getting it right, we should be getting rich or getting famous or getting bigger or getting more impressive by worldly standards, however we measure that. And Paul won't give an inch to that idea, which is why he won't take a cent from the Corinthian church. A cent or a mite or what? I don't know if they had cents. They had whatever coin they had, you know what I mean. So the, the thing is they're an established church, and we know that they had wealthy members, and they could almost certainly afford it caring for Paul, but he won't take it because he's showing them that the true mark of discipleship is to deny yourself, take your cross, and follow Christ. Not to be served, but to serve. And so we know that during his time in Corinth, his ministry in Corinth, he, he worked at his trade uh, as a tent maker. He also accepted assistance from uh, churches in Macedonia. Uh, but he would not take anything from those he was ministering to in Corinth. And this is why Paul kind of toots his own horn about this so much and why he, he spends so much time driving this home in chapter 9. Because the church needs to see what he's showing them here. They need to see his example. So he asks all these rhetorical questions to make it plain to them that gospel ministers ought to be paid by the people they're serving, if at all possible. This is where he starts. We'll just run through some of these questions here. Uh, in verse 4, he says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? You know, on one level, this is a practical concern, right? Someone is devoted to full-time ministry of the Word. That's a good thing and a tremendous benefit to the church. But they've still got to eat, right? Uh, they're the ones, and the most natural system would be the ones they are serving should provide this. Uh, verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, there's an implication here on one level that Paul is able to make these sacrifices uh, because he's single. He only has his own mouth to feed. Uh, he can work full time and give the rest of his time to shepherding the church. He doesn't have a wife to, to care for, children to raise up, a family that needs his time as well. You know, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that if someone won't take care of the needs of his own family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yet even being single, he still says he has this right. And the first uh, part of verse 7, kind of a, a poignant illustration for Memorial Day, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Interesting to dwell on that for a moment as our nation is remembering and honoring those who gave their lives and service of others, who gave up their rights to life and, and liberty so that our rights could be enjoyed and protected, and our minds also wander toward uh, veterans who, who made that risk, and sometimes we see that they're not doing so well. 
And we get angry, I think, rightfully so, when we think about someone who has served us in that way, risked life and limb, maybe even given limb, uh, who are homeless, suffered untold mental trauma, coming back to a nation that uh, seems unwilling or unable to repay that sacrifice. Uh, it's just not right, right? Now, most pastors in this country have it easy compared to that, especially pastors in this country. Uh, then again, most gardeners and shepherds have it easier than that, uh, which is where Paul goes next. In 7b, he says, Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The principle is that when someone is devoting their time to serving someone or something else, even if it's a grapevine, it's right for the one serving to be compensated. From the soldier serving his nation to the gardener serving a vine and getting grapes to the shepherd tending the flock and getting milk to the pastor shepherding a church. There's a principle of justice there that even the world sort of intuitively recognizes. But Paul goes on to say it's it's not just the world that recognizes this. This is a a biblical principle, he says in uh, verse 8. Starting in verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Uh, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So Paul says it's not just a matter of, of practical wisdom, but there's a biblical principle here. Under the Old Testament law, uh, if you had an ox that was working some grain for you, uh, treading it out, I guess grinding it into flour or something, um, it would naturally want to eat that grain because that's what cows do, right? That's what oxen do. Um, It's a good life as an ox. But you're not allowed under the Old Testament law to put a muzzle on that so it can't eat it. You might want to do that because you get more grain that way. Uh, So... It's not just a weird agricultural code. The the principle there is you need to allow the ox to get something from its its labor. Uh, And that principle applies even more strongly to Paul's case. Really, it's a principle, if you think about it, it goes back to creation, right? The man was put in the garden to work the ground and eat the fruit of his labor. It, It sort of cuts against the grain of God's law and God's design for someone to sow without reaping the fruit of their labor. And Paul applies this to ministry. That seems weird, though, because this ministry, it's not working the ground. It's it's spiritual labor. Uh, Shouldn't the reward just be spiritual? Well, Paul is one step ahead of us. He says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You This gets to the sacred and secular divide that sometimes trips us up in, in so many ways. Uh, Gospel ministry is spiritual. Bringing money into the picture does seem to to contaminate it to our minds, but I mean, and it's true. We should not be in this form of the money. Our reward is in heaven. Of course you don't want someone in this position who is ministering simply for shameful gain, as Scripture calls it. But in fact, according to Scripture, all of our work is spiritual, whether it's working at uh, whatever job you do, working at Walmart or uh, working at home, changing diapers, all work is spiritual. Uh, Colossians 3 reminds us all to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That doesn't mean that none of us should expect an earthly paycheck, but it does mean that we all should see our work as spiritual and having a heavenly reward. Verse 13 gets even more uh, pointed to my mind. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? See, under the old covenant, there were some offerings that were entirely burned on the altar, Uh, But there were plenty of other offerings, whether meat or grain or oil, where a portion was burned on the altar and the rest was eaten by the priests. Deuteronomy 18 verse 1 says that the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. The priests who were from the tribe of Levi, when the nation came into the promised land, they weren't given uh, a territory, weren't given land. That's what it means by portion and inheritance. It's referring to the land. So how did the priests live in an agrarian society? If you don't have land, how do you live? And the answer is right there. They ate the offerings. Think about that for a moment. The holy sacrifices offered up to God at the temple, these guys got to eat. That seems sacrilegious, but it's not. And in other passages, this practice, it's called most holy. So in verse 14, Paul applies this to his own situation. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That also seems sacrilegious, but according to Paul, it's not. It's, it's a good thing. It's, it's wrong to be in it for the money for shameful gain, but it's not wrong to get money from ministry. Uh, It's not an embarrassment or a necessary evil. Paul, uh, when he says that the Lord commanded uh, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, he's most likely quoting from Christ in Luke 10. When he says the Lord commanded, that's his way of quoting Jesus. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 uh, of his followers uh, to go and preach the gospel to minister to others, and he told them to take nothing with them. That means that they're going to need to still eat, and they're going to be dependent on those who they're serving. He says to, they're to allow others to give them a place to stay and food to eat. Uh, in verse 7, he says, Eating and drinking whatever is set before you, for the laborer deserves his wages. That's what I think Paul is referring to here. He quotes it directly in 1 Timothy 5, these words of Christ. Jesus' point here is that these guys shouldn't feel guilty about accepting what others provide for them. Jesus says, you've done the work and you've earned this. You've done the work and you've earned this. It's not not charity. This passage also cuts both ways because it says to eat whatever is set before you. It it doesn't seem to allow for uh, demanding more, eat whatever is provided. If they're generous, they're generous. If they can't give as much, they can't give as much. But it's interesting to me that it's described as wages that are deserved. I've heard it said, uh, maybe you've heard this too, that the church doesn't pay its ministers. We just provide for them so they can serve freely. And I think what they're getting at is an element of truth. There's, there's a responsibility to serve that doesn't go away uh, just because money does. It's not like Lucy from Peanuts at the psychiatrist's booth and until you put your nickel in the jar, uh, you're not getting any help from me. At the same time, both Jesus and Paul do describe it as provision for wages that the laborer deserves. When I look at the passages that speak to this issue, 
I think the Bible is getting at an idea that maybe we can call mutual generosity, that we outdo each other in giving for one another. That's what Paul is kind of modeling in so many places. Think of Paul's instructions for husbands and wives as an example. What does Paul tell wives in Ephesians 5's? Ephesians 5's wives in Ephesians 5's? He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But then what does he say to husbands? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're both ready and willing to sacrifice your preferences, even what you see as your rights out of love for each other, you're on the right track with this whole marriage thing. Um, As he says in Romans 12 uh, to everybody, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the same principle, I think, uh, when Paul is talking about churches, congregations, and their pastors. The Bible instructs congregations with things like share all good things with those who teach, in Galatians 6, consider them worthy of double honor in uh, 1 Timothy 5, which in context uh, refers to uh, compensation. See to it that they lack nothing in Titus 3. Don't muzzle the ox. The laborer deserves his wages. I care for them wisely and generously. But then to those who preach, he says, do everything for the sake of the elect, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And woe to you if you don't preach the gospel. It may not look exactly like what Paul was able to do as a single man, but the challenge, I think, stands for every pastor today to think through how can we model that kind of self-sacrifice, giving up our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, leading by example, as Paul demonstrates for us. But the main point for today is that this is a challenge for all of us. Remember, the whole reason Paul spends so much time driving this point home is so that the Corinthians don't miss his example, so they can follow his example. You might expect him, if he's doing this, you know, working without pay, to not spend so much time talking about it, right? Sort of don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, but this church needs to see his example and learn from it. So many of the issues that they're facing boil down to this unwillingness to be generous with one another. They're demanding their rights and their freedom. And in so doing, they're giving up the gospel. So Paul says in verse 12, skipping back there, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I will endure anything. I will be hindered by anything Just let the gospel go forth. Again, the obstacle for the Corinthians is this false gospel of earthly power, success, and popularity. Paul gives up his rights to show them that the gospel is about the foolishness of the cross. It's about Christ crucified. And he expands on that idea, I think, in the last verses of today's passage. If you glance through verses 15 to 19, they're kind of difficult to interpret, Uh, Paul talks about boasting as if it's a good thing. That's the real challenge. Usually when we read boasting in the Bible, it it has to do with being self-righteous and prideful. But in this context, Paul means something more like glorying or rejoicing. It's a good and proper sense of joy and fulfillment that comes with work that's done well. Remember what the master said in the parable of the talents, "Well, well done, Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I think it's that kind of godly joy in his 
godly work that Paul is talking about here. But verse 16 is interesting. He says, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For a necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul says that just preaching the gospel isn't enough to bring the kind of ground for boasting that he's looking for. Preaching the gospel is the bare minimum that's required of him. And he's not interested in doing the bare minimum, the least amount of work to get by without being called a wicked, lazy servant. He doesn't want to bury the talent for sure, but he doesn't even want to throw the talent to the bankers. He wants to invest everything for his master, and that includes the rights and freedom that he has in the gospel. See, brings out in verses 18 and 19, bringing up rights and freedom again. Do you see what Paul is doing here, though? He's not just content to speak the gospel. He's living a life that is shaped by the gospel, a cross-shaped life. It's not enough to just intellectually believe the gospel or even preach the gospel with theological accuracy. If the gospel has penetrated to the heart then we'll see evidence of the gospel in the hands, in our actions, the way we live our lives. If the roots are feeding off the gospel, if the roots are drawing their life from the gospel, then the fruit will start to taste like the gospel. Ironically, the the sin-ridden church of Corinth is living by the law and not the gospel. They're demanding their rights and freedoms, looking to do the bare minimum to get by. It kind of reminds me of an attitude in Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice. Anyone, anyone, any Shakespeare fans, Merchant of Venice? I see one, two, good, both and Rebecca. Um, <clears throat> something about that, I don't know. Uh, but there's a character in this play named Shylock who loans some money to another character, Antonio. And the collateral for this loan is a pound of Antonio's flesh to be carved out of his chest, closest to the heart. And it's supposedly a joke, but not really. When Antonio has some hard luck and can't pay, predictably, Shylock demands his pound of flesh. You may have heard that saying, but one of the other characters comes in at, to the courtroom and tells him the solution is simple. He just needs to be merciful. But Shylock asks, by what compulsion must I? Why should I? Why should I have to be merciful? And there's a famous speech, the quality of mercy is not strained. In other words, mercy is not about what you have to do. If you had to do it, it wouldn't be mercy. If it was required of you, uh, it wouldn't be free and, and gracious generosity. And the character goes on to say, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. In other words, if justice is what you want, then justice is what you'll get, and that's not going to look good for you before God. Shylock says he doesn't care. My deeds upon, I, my, deeds upon my head, I crave the law. I crave the law. Well, this play came out 400 years ago, so I think it's safe for me to give some spoilers on this. Uh, Shylock craves the law, and the law is what he gets. Uh, By contract, he's entitled to that pound of flesh, but he's not entitled to any blood at all. So if he can carve out the pound of flesh without taking one drop of blood, great. But if he spills one drop of blood, then all his land, all his goods, all his wealth, it's all forfeit. Uh, So he gives up his claim, 
But then it gets even worse because there's another law that says if you're conspiring against the life of a citizen of Venice as he was, then all his wealth is forfeit anyway. In other words, he demanded what was coming to him, and so he got what was coming to him. And so often I find an attitude in myself that's not so different. When I think it's on my side, I crave the law. Give me my rights. Give me my due. Give me my pound of flesh. That's the attitude of Corinth. They're suing each other. They're abusing Christian freedom to harm weaker brothers and sisters. They're using spiritual gifts to build themselves up instead of building up one another. They're seeking their own glory instead of the glory of God, demanding their rights. But we are all sinners before God. The law condemns us. If we demand what's coming to us, that may betray the fact that in our hearts we are still putting our hope in the law, in what we deserve. And that's dangerous because what we deserve is eternal condemnation. God owes us nothing. God is within his rights to send us to hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And his only son, Jesus Christ, gave up not just a pound of flesh, but his whole body and blood. He stood in our place and took the punishment that was rightfully ours. The only thing that God ever was obligated by justice to give us, condemnation and death, Christ has endured for us. God gave his only son. If there is anything that the Father had a right to, if there's anything that was the Father's most prized delight, it is his only begotten Son. And yet God did not withhold even his own Son from us. And with him he will freely give us all things. All things are yours, Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 3 of this same book. You deserve nothing. God in Christ has forgiven everything, and God through Christ gives you everything. And Paul, leading by example, shows the Corinthians and shows you and me what it looks like when this truth takes root in our hearts. That's why Paul spent so much time saying, this is my right, so that they could understand what it looks like to follow Christ. We no longer go through life demanding our rights and freedom. Instead, we use our freedom in Christ to serve one another freely and generously, looking for ways to give up what's rightfully ours so that our brothers and sisters may be built up, our neighbors may see the glory of Christ, and the gospel may bear fruit and increase so that God may be glorified in us. The gospel drives us to say, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. He who has been forgiven little loves little, but I have been forgiven much. And by God's grace, may I love much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great gift of salvation. You didn't have to save us. You certainly didn't have to send your son to die for us, to suffer and bleed, pour out his life on the cross. 
but it was the only way for us to be saved. And you determined in your unsearchable love to love us, to ransom us and to redeem us. Lord, we confess that in so many ways every day this attitude is not what's on display in our own lives. Uh, it's so easy to think in terms about in terms of what I deserve. What does the world owe me? What does my family owe me? What does my church owe me? And yet we know that while you owed us nothing, you gave us everything. May we have that same mindset that is shown in Christ Jesus, who was seated at the right hand of God in heaven, worshipped by angels, and yet came to earth to be mocked and scorned by sinful people, to be rejected and despised and spat upon mocked and tortured and killed, all for the sake of sinners like me. Father, be gracious to us. Show us this picture of your glory and your grace day by day, by your spirit, through your word, through the words of our brothers and sisters, may we encourage one another, show one another Christ, so that we may be transformed day by day into the image of Christ. Be at work in us and through us to show the world the glory of your only begotten Son, that you might be glorified in us, that others might see that glory and worship you. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name, amen.